0: And so turn to Psalm 4, if you would please, or if you don't have a Bible, you can find the reading printed in the bulletin and pay careful attention to the reading of God's Word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent." Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Thus far the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. The last couple of years have been uh, years that are full of questioning for me, um, questioning for me and for my family. Um, We've suffered uh, our fair share in the last uh, few years, and as that's happened, um, we have developed uh, liturgies, not liturgies for the church per se, but liturgies in our own lives. What is a liturgy? A liturgy is something that we use to orient ourselves, to help us to make sense of what's going on around us, to help move our hearts in a particular direction. Now, you may be sitting here saying, Joel, uh, a liturgy is an old term. I have no way to connect to that. So let me help you for a second here. Um, At the end of a difficult day, uh, you may be like me. Uh, You may come home from work, and it may be that you turn on the TV and you binge watch some Netflix, right? That's a liturgy. That's something that you practice. You may come home at the end of the day and uh, be frustrated and tired, and you may go to the refrigerator and you may grab a beer. That's a liturgy, something that you practice to orient your heart, to help you make sense of the world. You may be like me, and you may go to the cabinet, and you may grab a bar of chocolate, and you may break off a piece and eat it, because the attack of the dementors have been particularly strong that day. That's a liturgy. Now, Psalm 3, um, as Pastor Rob so masterfully showed us last time we looked at, a psalm provides us with a liturgy for a morning when you wake up and you're about to face a really difficult day. Psalm 3 was actually written for that purpose. And now Psalm 4 is written. Psalm 4 is given to us, to give in to the church, to help us orient our lives after a difficult day, a day full of anxiety, a day full of fear, a day full of wondering and questioning, Psalm 4 is given to us so that at the end of the day, we have a liturgy. We have something to go through. Something that can bring us rest in the middle of impossible circumstances. You see, it's worth noting here that God provides us Both a pattern and a help in the midst of our weakest times. In the morning, he tells us that he is a shield around us in the face of our enemies so that as we go out into the world, we can know that God is with us. And in the evening, he tells us. He says, not only am I the shield who protects you, I'm the God who vindicates you. You see, that's good news. He doesn't tell us, get up. Get up with enough strength, enough faith, and defeat your enemies. He doesn't say to us at the end of a difficult day, work up enough, enough justification for yourself so that when you lay down in bed at night and you think back over all of the ways in which you struggled and failed, then you can provide for yourself A little bit of rest. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the God who vindicates you. I will give you rest. You see, this is the beauty of it. The psalmist doesn't tell us exactly what's going on. It isn't unlike in Psalm 3 where we know that Absalom was chasing David. In Psalm 4, we aren't given any clues as to what's happening. And that's so beautiful. That's so great that we don't know the circumstances. Because what God does for us is He speaks into our common situation. He speaks into our common lives. Whether it's when we experience the difficulty of having our beliefs challenged. Or we have a big project to do at work or at school. And we're over budget and out of time. Or we get a terrible diagnosis. Or we wake up to the news of more shootings. Or we just walk through the day. And we realize that we just aren't the people who we should be. Who we want to be. God gives us this psalm. This psalm, and he meets us in the middle of our crazy to give us rest through the power of the gospel. And so we're going to look at this psalm in three ways. The first way, all three of them will be oriented. It will help orient our hearts towards God. The first way is that God has vindicated us. The second way is that God is faithful. And then the third way is that God gives us joy and safety and rest. And so first, it's God who vindicates us. David's in distress. He's still in distress as he's writing this psalm. Um, this isn't something that happens like instantaneously. It's not like David wakes up, prays this thing, and then it's like, bing, everything's calm. Dave's, David's in the middle of distress. I almost called him Dave there as if we're personal friends. Um, David's in the middle of distress, and in the midst of his distress, he begins to realize people are talking about him. People are speaking about him, and the words that they're speaking in many ways are true. If you don't remember who David is, David was the king of Israel, but David was also an adulterer. Um, uh, David forced Bathsheba, uh, in many ways, using his power over her as the king of the land to come and lay with him. David then proceeded to, uh, to send her husband out to the front lines, to the very middle of where the battle was the worst, and then told all the rest of the troops to pull back and left her husband there to die. David was known, um, his house was known as a house that was uh, characterized by bloodshed. And yet David, in the midst of all of this, He turns his heart to God in the midst of all of his sin, in the midst of all of his unrighteousness, he turns his heart to God and look at what he does. Look down at verse 1. See what he says. He says, answer me when I call. Now this verb is in the imperative. Isn't that weird? David's actually telling God to do something. Who is David to tell God? Answer me when I call. Answer me, God. You see, David's shifting the pressure off of himself to finding an answer for the situation. And he's putting it squarely onto God. Answer me when I call, God. Wicked men surround him. They accuse him. So he turns, he turns to the only one who can actually speak a better word than his own works. He turns to his God and he says, God, answer me. I'm in the midst of distress. I need you. David knows who he's calling to. Look back down at verse one. Answer me when I call. O God. Of my righteousness. He's calling out to the God of His righteousness. The only one whose opinion truly matters. The God of His righteousness. He is the God who has made David righteous. He is the one who has given him righteousness. David is appealing to God. And God is not removed. God does not seek to defend his people from afar. God is not an uncaring God who sits by the wayside while his people are maligned. No, David appeals to him. And he says, answer me, God, the God of my righteousness. David looks to the one who's outside of himself. The one who is and will be his righteousness. Now we know on this side of the cross and the empty tomb who that actually is, right? But David's faith was looking forward. Saying, answer me God of my righteousness. The one who's outside of me. And we know that person is Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this, makes this amazing statement. For our sake, he made him to be sin. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that we, sinful people, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what happens there? It's this great exchange. It's this amazing act that Jesus carries out for us. He is the God of our righteousness. Why? Because He, the One who knew no sin, the one who was perfect, who was blameless, He became sin. And He did it willingly for you, for me, for David, for us in the midst of all of our mess. Jesus Christ became sin, who knew no sin, so that we, imperfect, broken, sinful, anxious people would become the righteousness of God. You see, it can only be the God who is both the just and the justifier. It can only be that God who can do such an amazing act in the midst of the dumpster fire of our lives. God carries out his justice on sin. But he doesn't carry it out on you and me if we're in Christ. He carried it out on Jesus. He was just. But he's also the justifier. He is the one who makes us righteous. And David remembers the past actions of God. This is the gist of line two. You've given me a relief in the midst of my distress. This literally means, in the midst of my constraint, you've given me room. I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack before. Um, I suffer from panic attacks. Uh, used to be way more prevalent than they are now. But a panic attack is that time in your life when, for no real reason, it's just like you feel like you're gonna die. Um, Anxiety happens, uh, you're under pressure, your stress is high, all of a sudden it feels like an elephant sitting on your chest, it feels like your arm's hurting and you're thinking to yourself, am I having a heart attack right now? Am I dying? In my constraint, you gave me room. So with confidence, David cries out, be gracious, hear my prayer. In the midst of my anxiety, in the midst of my failure, in the midst of my wondering, God, are you good? Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. You see, there are accusers and there are accusations and they always come. We know of the great accuser, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, who whispers in our ears in the dark of the night, reminding us over and over again of the ways in which we have failed God. We've failed our family. We've failed our friends. We've failed ourselves. There's the accuser. And then there's the accusations, there's the things that he brings. There's our own conscience that reminds us of all of the ways in which we can't. They seek to bring shame on us. They seek after lies. Their accusations are vanity and lies. It's what the psalmist tells us. And yet they weigh on our minds, they weighed on David's mind. They cause us to doubt. What if these accusations really are true? What if God doesn't love me? What if my weak, what if my weak is what speaks about me? And then you can't fall asleep. there's an answer. Notice the answer. David tells these accusers to know, to understand, and to remember. He says, it's God. It's God who's made me righteous. And this is proven by the fact that God hears my prayers and answers them. You see, the very fact that God answers David proves that David is set apart by God. So, where do you stand today? Are you one who comes here today and you um, think to yourself, uh, God will judge me on my own works? And I think that I've done more good than I've done bad. And so God will make it all okay. Dearest friend, let me tell you, um, that's not how it's going to work out for you. The accusations, the accuser, he'll be proven to be right. And you'll have no shield. You'll have no rest. Or are you one who comes today and you come and you say, as the old song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to thee for dress, helpless, come to thee for aid, foul, not like the bird, but disgusting, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, if you're in the first group, making it into the second group, it doesn't depend on you. It's a gift of God by faith. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. Second point. Now, in verse 6, this question is posed. And David puts himself in the place of the many, he joins in with this great crowd of the faithful. As we all ask together, who will show us some good? I wonder if you can identify with that question. Um, Who will show us good in the midst of this mess? Who will bring this to good? And then when we hear the answer, this answer that should resound in our ears, look down at your Bibles to uh, to verse 6. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? And then we have the answer, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This for the Israelite listening would, gone, would have gone off like alarm bells. I mean, their minds would have been blown. Because they would have been transported straight to what we know as Numbers chapter 6. To the ironic blessing, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. Do you hear that? May He lift up His countenance on you. Who will show us good? It's the God who has turned His face towards us in Christ. The God who is faithful to His promises. John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, said this once. He said, one day I was passing through a field, and suddenly I thought of a sentence, your righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of faith, I saw Christ sitting at God's right hand, and I suddenly realized there is my righteousness. Wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say, where is your righteousness? For it was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make, uh, or my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame of heart make my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, In Christ, God has forgiven all of your sins. So that when the accuser comes and he levels his accusations against you, God can tell you, and you can, you can rest. He can call you to trust in him, and he can cause you to rest. That rest that we hear about in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You see, the accusations no longer have power over you. Because their power has been stripped away by the blood of Christ. The accuser no longer has power over you. Even in the middle of the night when all is despair and all seems to be lost. He no longer has power over you. Because your righteousness, your strength, your power is seated next to God. The Father ever interceding for you. So, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our anxiety, God gives us joy, safety, and rest. Last point. Dwelling in joy. See, the beauty about this psalm is that uh, (laughs) the situation never resolves for David. The accusers are still there. The accusations are still coming. And yet David affirms the confidence that he has, the confidence that God has answered, that God has been gracious to him and has heard his prayers as he's requested in verse 1. And he reflects on the blessing of God. He breaks this this blessing down in this beautiful way. Look down at your Bibles. He says, you have put more joy, verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You see, what David does here is he sets out this contrast. This contrast between joy and happiness. Let me see if I can help to illustrate this. Um, you all come to church, right? And when you come to church, people ask you how you're doing, right? And your week is a total mess, right? You've just fought with, with uh with your friends, maybe your spouse, you've just if you have kids, you've yelled at your kids, you're trying to get to church on time, you walk in the door, you're angry, you're frustrated, maybe you look at your bank account and you're like, How the heck am I gonna make it this week? And you walk in and you're like, oh and then someone asks you, "Hey, how are you doing?" You're like, "Oh, I'm great. Things are good." You know, you put on the happy face. The funny thing about happiness is that um, happiness is impermanent. It comes and it goes. Now, for those of you who know me, um, you know that I love grain and wine. Um, I love a good piece of bread. Well toasted, nicely buttered. I love a good cup of wine. Um, Funny thing is, I can eat a good piece of bread and drink a good cup of wine, and those may make me smile. Many times they do. But after about five minutes, what do I want? Another piece of bread. Another glass of wine. You see, in the grain and wine here, the grain is referencing the harvest. You know what it is to get in, put in a good day's labor, a good hard day's work, and look back and say, yeah, that was a good day's work. Financial security, security in your retirement, health insurance. The happiness of working hard. Grain. You know what wine does? Makes your heart merry. Wine. And David says, You have put more joy in my heart than we have after a good day's work profiting, eating a nice piece of bread from our labor. Or when we drink a nice glass of wine, you've put more joy. So what is this joy? Joy doesn't look like the church face. Joy doesn't look like an impermanent happiness. No, it's characterized by living in the steady flow of, being poured out by God of His grace and His mercy. It's that thing that holds you through suffering. It's that thing that gives you solid ground to stand on. David says, you've given me the solid ground of joy. You've caused me to dwell in safety. He, once again, as in Psalm 3, affirms his trust in God. And what's so fascinating is he says this, verse 8 In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, when they are in the midst of a panic attack, when you're in the midst of anxiety, when those things overcome you, overwhelm you, the last thing you can do is sleep, and yet it's the very thing you wish you could do. And yet David affirms his trust in God by this act of total vulnerability. How do you defend yourself while you're asleep? You can't answer accusations. You can't defend yourself against the accuser. All you can do is sleep, and yet David affirms he knows that God is the God who will make him lie down in peace and in safety. So David receives the rest of God. The great thing about this psalm is that there's nothing that David does. David cries out to God, and then he rests. God gives David rest after a day of difficulty because of all of the worries and concerns, all the accusations and accusers that press in on him. David knows and we know that they're all answered in Christ. The Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, Number 26 says this, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says believe in this and everything is already done. So, what concerns you today? What keeps you up at night? Is it your conscience? Do you hear the voice of the law accusing you, reminding you of your failure? Remember, God is your righteousness. Does the voice of the accuser come and remind you of all the ways you aren't who you want to be, all the ways in which you've failed, all the ways in which you can't provide? Reminding you of all the things that you need and you don't know where they're going to come from, know this. Know that God has turned his face towards you. Not in anger or in judgment, but rather in love and in joy. You see, this God, this God who is your righteousness, invites you after the end of a long day to participate in his liturgy of rest. May God make Resurrection Presbyterian a church that rests in the finished work of Christ for it and finds rest for her soul. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.